Hey, people, welcome to the second Veritas, the semester. Good to see some old faces. Great to see some new faces. Anybody got any homework yet? Yeah, probably, yeah. Everybody, good. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Austin Connor. I am one of the co-directors here at Veritas. This behind me is my lovely-looking family, my wife, Polly, my three little blessings. Some of you know them. Adeline, six and a half. Tyler is four and a half. Clayton, who I'm holding, is about two. He's the family pet, the great uniter of, of our family. My wife is a lovely saint. It's the least I can say about her for all that she does for our family, especially all that she has done for me. Never has my wife done more for me than when I tore my ACL. So about two and a half years ago, uh, I was playing basketball once a week, and I, I tweaked it going down the lane. I was about to, you know, dunk on some poor soul. Everybody laughing. Uh, so I tweaked it a little bit and it took, took a few weeks off, had to do some PT, gave it a rest. And my first time back, about a month and a half later, I was kind of joking around like, yeah, man, I hope I don't tear my ACL. Ooh. First play, I went to make a cut down the lane. The lower half of my leg stayed. The top half just went, and it was bad. It wasn't one of those, hmm, maybe I did something. I was on the floor screaming at the top of my lungs. If you were present there, you were feeling awkward because everything's dead silent. This guy's screaming on the floor, crying like a baby. It was bad. Uh, tore my ACL, tore 30% of my meniscus. Got some pictures of the recovery there. It's my, me laying in bed, my daughter's on the ground there. You can see. God bless her. Uh, another one. This is for about two or three months. This was the bedtime routine. Me, I got a big couch cushion there, putting my leg up, reading for bedtime. And my wife, she's taking care of... Uh, we had two kids then, but I was the third kid. One of the worst moments of the recovery, I get migraines sometimes, and, and I, if I take some medicine, I think I can get ahead of it, but one time I didn't, and it, I got it, and if you have migraines, you know you got to go to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep because my leg hurt so bad, so I had to just deal with like a three to four hour migraine. I'm, again, curled up in the fetal position, praying, Jesus, take me home. It was bad. It was a lot, a lot of pain. I tell that story. Because it illustrates a truth that a lot of times I wish weren't true. It illustrates the truth that I am not in charge of my own story. I'm not the author of my story. See, if it were up to me, I would never, not in a million years, write into my own story, choose to put myself and my family through that much pain and through that much hardship. I don't think I'm alone there. And yet it ended up in my story. Why? Why did it end up there? You know, my story of pain and hardship is nothing compared to some of the stories that I know you guys find yourselves in right now. Some of you are in the middle of nightmares. You're in the middle of stories you didn't write. You're in the middle of stories that you want no part of and you want out of as soon as possible. Some of you are facing impossible living situations. Some of you haven't had real friendships for a long time. Some of you are in the cycle of addictions. Some of you are being, have been for a while, and are being discriminated against in some way. Some of you have been battling depression and other mental illnesses for months now, maybe years. Some of you have been striking out left and right, looking for an internship, looking for a job, looking for what is next. Some of you have even lost close friends, close family members. There's more, I know. 
If you're not currently facing pain and hardship, then as Andrew was saying earlier, surely you know somebody who is, a friend, a classmate, a family member. And even if you're not going through that pain and hardship right now, just wait, because it might be coming tomorrow. Maybe not tomorrow tomorrow, but maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, maybe in a decade. I don't know. But at some point, all of us are going to find ourselves in the middle of a story that we didn't write and that we want no part of. Why is that? What do we do in that pain and that hardship when it shows up? What do we do about it? Well, tonight we're going to learn from a woman named Hannah. Hannah is just like many of us. She found herself in a story filled with pain and hardship. She's in the middle of a story she didn't write and she wants no part of. She was hopeless and asking many of the questions that you and I who are going through pain and hardship or who have been ask ourselves. But, you know, instead of giving in to hopelessness and despair in the face of her pain and hardship, she actually came out of it stronger. So the question is, how'd she do that? This semester of Veritas, if you were here last week, or if this is your first week, we just started a sermon series through uh, the books, Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. It's called The Promise of a King. And last week, Kyle did a great job of kind of setting the stage for us. See, we saw that God chose a specific group of people, the nation of Israel, and he gave them a specific mission, a specific task. That was to bless the world around them, a world that was broken, a world that was sick, a world that was lost. They're supposed to serve and to minister to these people. But what we saw was they were a mess. They were just as, if not more, broken and sinful than the people around them. They needed a king to lead them. But there was no king. Enter Hannah. Enter Hannah. And so tonight we're going to learn about her pain her questions, and God's answers. We're going to learn about Hannah's pain, her questions, and God's answers. Let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 1. A lot of names here, so show me some grace, all right? There was a certain man of Ramathame, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Eliehu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from, uh, year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her room, her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose to go to the temple. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. 
There's two things in this passage that stand out that help us understand uh, the pain that Hannah was going through. Not the only two, but two of the main ones. First is in verse 2. It says, Hannah had no children. She wasn't able to have kids. Some of you have family and, and friends who aren't able to have kids. They're struggling with infertility, maybe even right now. And so you know how painful this can be. And maybe even there's some of you in here who have gotten diagnoses from a doctor that you found out you're not going to be able to have kids. Those are devastating words to hear. And in Hannah's culture, it was no less painful to hear. In fact, it actually might have been even more painful to hear to find out that she couldn't have children. You see, when Hannah found out that she couldn't have kids, she was filled with hopelessness. She was filled with hopelessness because in this culture, infertility meant hopelessness for a woman because it meant she wouldn't have anybody to take care of her in her old age. There's no Social Security. There's no Medicare. There's no senior living centers. If you are elderly and you do not have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to take care of you, then you are up a creek. You are vulnerable. You are weak. Infertility meant hopelessness for a woman's family in this culture because the respect and the prosperity of a family was tied to how large it was. And so the more family members there were, think about it, the more uh, hands there were to do work. And the more hands to do work meant more money, which meant more income. And so larger families, they ended up making their way to the top of the social circles, to the elite, because they had huge families to share the load and to get more money. And lastly, infertility meant hopelessness for an entire nation. Because the nation relied on their people for work. See, they needed able bodies to increase the workforce. And if you weren't able to have kids, if you couldn't contribute, then you weren't worth the time. You were seen by the nation as a, as a dead weight. You were useless to them. And so oftentimes, many times, you were just forgotten about because you didn't matter. And so when Hannah found out that she couldn't have children, she felt the weight of all of these. And so what about... What about you? What about me? Where do you feel the weight of hopelessness like this? Is, is that medication not working? Is that plan for whatever it is falling through? Is that struggle against the sin, is it too much? Is that search for friends not going like you thought it would? Whatever it is, where do you, where do you feel hopeless? Another clue we get, second one, to help us understand Hannah's pain is found in how she's being treated by her rival, Penina. Back in verse 6, it says, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Quick side note, you'll notice that Elkanah had two wives. You know, that's at best pretty weird and at worst very offensive. So let me say just something real quick about that. Monogamy is God's design for humanity. Okay, it's God's design for the human race. And there's just a few instances of polygamy in the Old Testament, but you'll notice every single time it never goes well. That's not an accident. It's because God never designed it. And the other thing is this, this um, process of having more than one wife doesn't mean it was right, but it was a common social custom. Because if you wanted your family line to continue, and that was very important, and you had a wife who couldn't have kids, you had to have the family line and so oftentimes people would take a second wife. Doesn't make it right, but that's just kind of the, the culture that we are reading about here. So if you have more questions about that, come talk to me after. But back to the verses. If you notice in verse 6, Peninnah provoked Hannah. You see, Peninnah was Elkanah's backup plan. 
Elkanah loved Hannah more than Peninnah. But again, Hannah couldn't have kids, and so Elkanah had to keep his line going, and so he got Peninnah. You see, Peninnah had something that, hadn't, that Hannah didn't, and that was the ability to have kids. And so Peninnah knew that she was far more useful, far more valuable to her family and to her society than Hannah. And maybe there was a little bit of bitterness towards Hannah. Elkanah loves Hannah, not her. And so in that hurt, in that pain, Peninnah is going to make Hannah's life miserable. She is never going to let Hannah forget just how useless and hopeless she is. Day after day, week after week, year after year, she's going to rip the scab open again and again and again. Can you imagine what that would be like? The result of all this, skipping ahead to verse 6, was that it irritated Hannah. That's a pretty mild word in English. The actual word in Hebrew, it's similar and has the sense of an actual storm. Every other time this word is used in Scripture, it's talking about a literal storm. Only in this verse is it describing an emotion. Only in this verse does it highlight Hannah's inner emotional life. It's a roaring agony. She's not at peace. She can't eat. She can't sleep. She's depressed, most likely. So she has this inner roaring agony of an emotional do you ever feel that at times? Are you there now? Have you been there? You know, are there, out, are there people out there who are provoking you, singling you out, making your life a living hell? They won't let anything go. What are the things that keep you up at night? Why can't you eat? Why can't you sleep? Why are you tempting or maybe you do have panic attacks? What is it that you just can't let go of? How'd she get here? How the heck did Hannah find herself in the middle of this story that she wanted no part of? Chapter 1, verse 5. But to Hannah, Elkanah gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. We hear it twice. What an accident. I wish I could say it was. I would love to say that this is an accident, but I can't because the text tells us twice the Lord closed Hannah's womb. This shows us that Hannah is not there by accident, but she's there by appointment. She's not there by accident. She's there by appointment. You see, sometimes we're in pain because we're running from God. You know the story of Jonah. Right? Jonah was called to be a prophet to the Ninevites. He's supposed to go to them and proclaim God's judgment on them, but Jonah bought a ticket to not Nineveh. Anywhere else but that. And he ran. What did God do? God chased him down. God knew where he was. And he sent a storm to wake him up and to get him to go back. And so sometimes we're in pain because we're running from God. But other times we're in pain because we're actually being faithful to God. There's a time when Jesus, after he fed the 5,000 people, he tells something to his disciples. This is in the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 14. He's speaking to his disciples. This is what he tells them. Immediately, he made his disciples get in the boat. You have to get in the boat. Go before him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. And when evening came, Jesus was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Did you catch that? Jesus told his disciples, get into a boat, and then a storm hit. Not just a quick storm, but they were out there for hours. They were there by appointment, not by accident. How do you think you got there? How did you get to where you are? Now, maybe you're there because you're running from God. It could be. 
But then again, maybe you're there because you're being faithful to God. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. That's for you and God to figure out. But what I do know is you're there by appointment, not by accident. Okay, but, but wait a minute. Are, are you just, did you just say, I think you just did, that God intentionally puts people in situations where they're going to feel pain, where they're going to feel hardship, where they're going to feel hopeless. Because if that's what you're saying, that, I mean, that can't be right. That can't be right because the loving and merciful and gracious God that I know would never put me in a place where I would be subject to this kind of torture and suffering and pain and hardship and hopelessness. How could he do that? Why would he do that? You ever ask yourself those questions? You ever hear someone ask you those questions and you don't quite know what to say? I've asked them. Hannah asked them. Why would God put Hannah there? couple things to say. Let's start with this. Asking why God does what he does, it's called a theodicy. It's called a theodicy. And that's just an attempt to justify God's plans and purposes to human beings. Now, if and when we do that, we're setting a pretty high bar for ourselves. We're setting a pretty high bar for ourselves because it shows that we believe that we are capable to understand God's ways and plans and purposes. I don't know about you, it would be very presumptuous of me to say that I can comprehend God's ways because God is doing 10,000 things at any given moment that I have no idea about. Maybe I get just a small glimpse, maybe 10%, maybe, but I can't claim to know all of it. A couple years ago, I was pulling into the public library with my family, let the kiddos out at the door, and I'm pulling in. You ever pull into a spot and you think you can make it, and then you overestimated your car's turn radius, and I didn't have the, uh, what, those uh, sensors that tell you, you know, if you're going, so I think I'm going to make it, I think I'm going to make it, oh my gosh, dang it, I just scraped the car, I get out, my bumper's a little bit torn up, there, this car barely has anything, and I wrestled a long time, don't judge me, like, do I leave a note, or do I not leave a note, do I leave a note, do I not leave a note, I don't want to leave a note, but I got to leave a note, so I'm mad, I'm writing a note, it's real nice, but inside, I'm in I'm irritated. I'm raging on the inside, right? So I leave the note, praying that I don't get a call. A couple hours later, I get a call. Hey, it's me. Thanks for the note. (laughs) Cool, man. Great. He took his car to the collision center. A week later, I get a check for $735. Woo! So write the check. Oh, smiling. Great. Love being faithful to God. All right. So write the check. (laughs) Yeah, you get it. I, I give it to him. I meet up at the collision center, give him the check. Come to find out a couple days later, I shouldn't have written him the check. I should have written the collision center the check. So what I asked the guy to do, I said, look, just tear up the check you gave me. Show me that you tore it up, and then I'll go take care of it. So he did it. Fine, or whatever. Three months later, summer Veritas meeting. Have some new people around. I'm talking with this guy. We're having a good conversation. He sends me a text. All right, I asked for his number, and I put my number in my phone. Up pops this check that's torn up. I lost my mind. This was the guy I hit at the library. Think about it for a second. This was the guy I hit at the library. I had no idea who I hit. And then all of a sudden I, get the, I look at my phone and I see the check that, I, that he had torn up. This was the guy I hit at the library. This is why I left the note. I had no idea that this guy would show up at Veritas one day. That's why I left the note. So it was great. But after a while, I was a really nice guy. Just came to Veritas that summer, came to Veritas that fall, but kind of didn't go anymore. And didn't see him around. Still haven't seen him for a couple years. Now, in the moment, 
I thought when I hit this guy, when I left that note, that was the means by which God's going to bring him into Veritas and things are going to go great and he's going to stay here for a while. And he came for a while, but I don't know where he is now. So what's the point? I knew a little bit of what God was doing, but I don't know the full story. I don't know why he stopped coming to Veritas. I don't know where he is. I hope he's doing well. He's a great guy. I'd love to see him. Point is, I have no idea what God is doing in any given moment. Neither do you and neither did Hannah. So why did God write that pain and hardship into her life? Why did he write the ACL tear into my life? Why did he write the pain and hardship into your life? It's okay to say, I don't know. Let's go ahead and state the obvious. But let me say one more thing. I want us to notice that hidden premise in the statement, this statement, the loving and merciful God that I know would never put me in a place where I'd be subject to pain and suffering. I would humbly submit that if you and I believe God is most concerned with keeping us happy and healthy, that we don't know the real God. If God is most concerned with keeping us happy and healthy, then we don't know the real God. Could it be that there might be certain situations where the most loving thing God could do would be to put us in a situation where we face pain and hardship? I just finished reading a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God. Really interesting book. It's a story of this 500-year-old civilization that was just discovered in the Honduran rainforest. Nobody had ever set foot in this jungle. Pretty cool. The author went there, kind of recorded everything. He came back a couple uh, months later and found out that he had a bite, and it turned into a really bad rash. Come to find out it was a super rare and kind of awesome, kind of gross parasite. And this thing was literally destroying his body from the inside out. And so he met with one of the foremost uh, parasitic doctors in the nation. And there's a cure for it. But the side effects were insane. If he submitted himself to this chemo for this drug, constant nausea, vomiting, paranoia, fever, shaking, chills. And at times, you get an overwhelming sensation that you're about to die. Now, here's my question. Was the doctor who prescribed this antidote, this drug, was he unloving? Was he unmerciful? Was he ungracious? No. In fact, he was just the opposite. It was because he cared about his patient, because he loved his patient, because he wanted the best for his patient that he offered him this drug, because in the end it would kill this parasite that was going to literally eat his body from the inside out. If that's true of doctors and patients, how much more is that true of God? How much more is that true of God? And even if you and I cannot conceive of reasons for why God could do something. That doesn't mean that a reason doesn't exist. He's God. We are not. I don't say that lightly. That's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. So Hannah had pain. Hannah had questions. God has answers. We have pain. We have questions, and God has answers Maybe not ones we'd expect, maybe not ones that we'd like necessarily, but answers nonetheless. He gave Hannah two answers. Let's go back to the story. The first answer he gave her, God reminded Hannah that he is a king who has a purpose for her pain. God is a king who has a purpose for her pain. Let's keep reading. So we'll pick up the story. Hannah had gone to the temple. right? She poured her requests out to the Lord. And this priest Eli saw her from afar uh, praying, and he goes up to her. And he talks to her, and this is what he says to her, verse 17 of chapter 1. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. 
And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God heard Hannah's request, and he gave her a son. She named him Samuel. And then what she did was she made good on her vow and returned him, and he was a couple years old, went back to the temple, turned him over to the priests for a life of service in the temple. And now, sometime soon after this whole episode, she reflected on what was going on and what happened and the purpose behind it. And she wrote part prayer, part song. Now, in this song, we get a little glimpse of God's purpose. I know, some, I, know I just said most times we don't get the purpose, but sometimes we do. Here's a case we actually get a little bit of the purpose behind the pain. So chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Samuel. This is part of her song. She said, The Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Notice that last sentence. Hannah said, God will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That's an interesting phrase, particularly when Israel has no king, particularly when things are chaotic nationally right now. Why would she say that? Well, it's a reference to sometime in the future when God is going to appoint a king. You see, what this means is that Hannah's son Samuel will somehow be used by God to bring a king to the throne. You see, here's what we know now. We have the benefit of hindsight. Here's what we know now. Samuel, this guy Samuel, grew up, and he became the person that God chose to anoint a king. That was very important. For Israel to know that God is king, there had to be someone who was able to appoint the king. That was Samuel. And Samuel's the one who anointed King David. Now, if you know the story of King David, he was the best king that Israel ever had. He was a man after God's own heart. But he wasn't good enough for God. Because David, if you know the story, was also an adulterer and a murderer. And his moral failings proved that another king was needed. And about a thousand years after David, a woman named Mary, she had what had to be a wonderful and terrifying, oh my God, moment when she's talking to an angel. The angel told her this in Luke chapter 1, he will be great. Your son will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's just another way to say the people of Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Mary was told that her son would be King Jesus, and King Jesus came from the family line of King David, and King David was King David only because he was anointed by Samuel, and Samuel was Samuel only because he was born to Hannah. And God gave Hannah Samuel because she trusted that God was a king who had a purpose in her pain. See, the chain of events that started by Hannah trusting. Did she know the entirety and the depths of God's purpose for what happened when her son was born? Absolutely not. There's no way. You think she would have known 3,000 years later that it'd be about three or 400 of us in this room at Columbia, Missouri, learning from her pain? No way. No way. So what's God's purpose 
for my pain? What's God's purpose for your pain? I don't know. But maybe I know a little bit of the 10%. I'm going to give two possibilities. Here's the first. Pain moves us to rely less on ourselves and more on God. Pain moves us to rely less on ourselves and more on God. In uh, the book of 2 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his experience doing ministry in Asia. This is what he says to the people he's writing to. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For here we go. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. If anybody ever says, God doesn't give me anything that I can't handle, just talk to this. These apostles could not handle life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There's a purpose statement right there. The pain was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The great British theologian, C.S. Lewis, wrote a book after his wife died. One of the first books he wrote was called Problem of Pain. It's a very academic, abstract discussion of pain. He writes this book towards the end of his life when his wife died. It's very different from the first book, very raw, very real, wrestling about his experience with his wife's death. Read the two if you want. It's really interesting. Here, in this book, he's imagining the purpose behind why might his wife have died. He had to imagine this. This is what he says. Nothing will shake a man, or at any rate a man like me, out of merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself. And I must surely admit that my wife would have forced me to admit that if my house was a deck of cards, the sooner it was knocked down, the better. And only suffering could do it. See, Lewis admitted that this pain in his life was most likely probably God's means to increase his faith in him. By his own admission, Lewis said that he thought he had a good enough faith, thought he had a good house of cards, but in the end it turned out the death of his wife showed him that he didn't. He just had a house of cards. One card pulled out the bottom and it crumbles. But by God's grace, through the pain and the hardship, Lewis's faith was made stronger. Now that's, if we haven't gone through something traumatic like that, that's okay. You know, that's not grounds to question our faith. But what this example shows us, what Lewis shows us, is that God can use tragic events like this, pain like this, to strengthen our faith. Second possible purpose that God might have for our pain is that this pain is refining. This pain is refining. James 1 Starting in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Purpose statement. Here we go. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I read an article uh, by a geologist who made an interesting claim. He said that clay has the possibility to be turned into precious gems. Clay has the possibility to be turned into precious gems. What they're finding is that clay is actually just composed of these microscopic clay mineral crystals. And what happens when you put them under lots of pressure, rather than get smaller and smaller, they actually grow bigger and bigger. So that over time, under enough pressure, what happens is they actually grow. And they grow and they become refined. And pretty soon, some of these are transformed into garnets, which are semi-precious gems. Pretty interesting. 
And that geological process illustrates what James is telling us perfectly. You see, pain can refine, can develop, and can purify us. It can build character. It can complete us. When we face pain and we face hardship, at least when I do, my first instinct is to say no. Get it out. Get it away. I don't want it. Now, that's not wrong to do. It's okay to do. In fact, we should do it. But should that be my first prayer? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe my first prayer should be to ask God, what do you want to teach me? God, how do you want to grow me? Yes, take it away. But like Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Said God gave Hannah two answers in her pain. First, that he was a king who has a purpose for the pain. Here's the second answer. He's a king who reverses stories. God is a king who reverses stories. Back to Hannah's song. This is what she says in chapter 2, verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. You see, God reverses stories. Hannah sings this and reflects on this because this is her story. She couldn't have kids, and now she can. She was hopeless, and now she's filled with hope. This isn't anything new. This is what God does. In fact, God did it for Jesus. In Philippians verse 2, sorry, chapter 2, it's what Paul says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? He reversed it. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, we have a king who reverses stories. And in the person of Jesus, we actually have proof that this is true. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is ruling right now on earth, that proves and is the guarantee that one day life is going to be so much better. He's king right now, and he's in the process of reversing the curse of sin and pain and sorrow and death and suffering and tears and cancer and depression, whatever it is. Has God answered your prayer? If he has, you should rejoice. You should be so thankful, but you shouldn't settle. Don't settle because God has something even better for you and for me. Has God not answered your prayer? I get it. It's hard. That's hard. Keep praying. Remember that God's a king who has a purpose for your pain, that he's a king who's in the process of reversing all of our stories. Close with this. I've, I've talked about my mom some of you know, she, uh, for the last, gosh, 20 years now, she's had multiple sclerosis. It's a disease that affects the spinal cord, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally. My mom is affected mentally especially, doesn't have any short-term memory. Uh, she also has diabetes, which is a bad combination. And so she lives in an assisted living center. She can't leave for more than a day. And this is how it's been. I've prayed for almost 20 years that my mom gets better, that this MS would stop would actually reverse, that her diabetes would go away. But over the years, it hasn't gotten better. In fact, it's actually gotten worse. And I know my mom has been praying the same thing, but it's gotten worse. What do I do with that? Why hasn't God answered my prayer? I don't know. What am I supposed to do with this? It's hard. But I think in the end, I need to believe and I need to trust what I'm asking all of us to believe and trust. Three things. My mom is there by appointment and not by accident. That God is a king who has a purpose behind my mom's 
pain and that God is a king who can reverse my mom's story. If not in this life, then for sure in the next life because she's trusting in his promises. And so as the music team comes up, I want to close by reading what I think has been one of my favorite psalms, gotten me through a lot. I hope it gets you through a lot. You know, we're not the author of our story. God is. Does that bring you comfort? Does that scare you? Is it a little bit of both? God's the author of our story. He's the king who has a purpose behind our pain, the king who's able to reverse those stories. And so will we trust him? Do we want him? Will we call out to him? If and when we do, this is what Psalm 91.15 says. This is what's going to happen when you and I do this. They will call on me and I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will deliver them and honor them. Let's pray. God, you are the king who is the author of our stories. I confess that on the one hand, I believe that and I want that. On the other hand, I don't like that. It's hard to to know why we experience pain and hardship. And sometimes, so often, we want the why. Maybe you give it to us, maybe you don't. If we don't get the why, Jesus, help us to believe. Help us to remember Hannah throughout our days, throughout our weeks. Help us to remind others about Hannah that she was in pain and she cried out to you and eventually you answered her prayer. You are a God who has a purpose in our pain and reverses our stories and we know that because of Jesus. Would you help us to believe that more and more? It's in your name that we pray.